Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lay, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. For many people, this is an astonishing moment of hope, a moment they thought would never come. And there are many, of course, who feel a sense of anxiety and loss. At 11 o'clock on Friday night, after decades of campaigning by Eurosceptics and years of political chaos and intense bargaining and infighting, Britain officially left the European Union. Onwards and upwards now, we can still deal with Europe, but we're not, you know, we're not tied to anyone. Great, brilliant victory for democracy. But that's the past. It's time now to talk about the future. Has Britain's economy really doomed itself to stagnation? What are the costs and opportunities of doing away with those much maligned EU regulations? And now that the countdown has begun to a final trade deal with the EU, what's at stake for British business? In a moment, I'll be chewing all that over with Mike Cherry, the chairman of the Federation of Small Businesses, and Dame Helena Morrissey, a fund manager, campaigner and Brexit optimist. But first, as talks begin over the final shape of the UK's trade relationship with the EU, negotiators and politicians have to grapple with the thorny issue of regulation. Many who championed Brexit argue that agreeing to align British regulation with European regulation in future would defeat the point of the whole thing. But the more divergence the UK wants, the harder and more distant the trading relationship becomes. Tamsin Booth is our Britain business editor, and she's been examining Britain's regulatory divergence dilemma. Hello, Tamsin. Hello, Patrick. So what is the government's attitude as far as we know it? How much divergence are we likely to see? Well, the rhetoric so far is certainly that a lot of divergence is is planned. And I think that has really taken the business community by surprise. They were expecting a slightly more conciliatory approach. About a week ago or so, the Chancellor said that there would be no alignment with EU regulations. And you can certainly understand that, particularly on future regulations, so-called dynamic alignment, It would be very difficult to accept that every time the EU27 changed their rules that we would have to follow because that's, of course, what the EU wants when they talk about alignment. So that's the rhetoric so far. Certainly, the limbo of the transition period lasting until the end of the year means that we we certainly won't know um, the outcome for quite a while. And as um, Rishi Sunak, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, put it to me, of course, these are opening negotiating positions on on both sides. Is there anything fundamentally different between the way we would like to do things in this country or our government would like to do things and 
the way things are done in the European Union. Is there a difference of principle that will give us a starting point for looking at how things might go? Well, the regulatory approach is definitely very different, and that stems from different legal systems. So regulation in Britain tends to be based on principles rather than prescriptions, sort of broad principles. And we look at outcomes more than what might possibly go wrong. And our common law system, of course, builds on these principles over time. European regulation is more codified, which leads to a lot of prescriptive detail. You can particularly see that in finance, where, for instance, the volume of of legislation and regulation in force has gone up 10 times since the global financial crisis in 2007-2009. So a tremendous um, level of detail there. So if we're looking at the city in particular, are there areas in that case where this difference in approach could benefit the City of London. It's such an important industry here. Well, I'd break that into two parts. So, so existing legislation, you'll find plenty of people in the, in the square mile who'd like to go in and tweak and amend bits of MIFID II or Solvency II, two of these massive regulations that have come from the EU in recent years. But that's probably not where the majority of the benefit can be found. It's really about the future and in particular fintech and the field of sustainable finance. These areas, there's nothing specific where you could say, oh, well, if you do that, then we'll prosper relative to other countries. But it's just a general sense of regulation, which is incredibly important in these industries in in terms of kind of giving a stoplight or or a go light to innovation and development. It's really about these industries in the future and how having control of your own regulatory levers is really very valuable. Now, that's not just true in finance. If you listen to the the, the government, certainly, it seems that science is also an area in which they seem to believe that our leaving the European Union gives us more ability to try new things. Is that also an area where divergence could actually help us because there's more sort of looseness in the British system than there would be in the European Union? I think that's right. So Britain's empirical or evidence-based approach to science and to discoveries does make it more permissive. And you'll hear scientists talking a lot about the EU's precautionary principle. If something could possibly go wrong, wrap it with red tape and wrap it with difficulties. One very current example, for instance, that scientists in many countries have really called for change is the example of the EU effectively banned plant breeding using gene editing techniques by classifying this technique within the GMO directive, which, because it's very complex and expensive to comply with, is a de facto ban. And this attitude to GMOs in particular comes from just lots of countries, lots of different value systems, and particularly in the Catholic South of the EU, you know, there's a lot of discomfort with kind of fiddling with nature. So I think that outside that regulatory system, there's definitely a lot of scope to do things differently. Now, up to now, we talk quite a lot about the potential benefits from divergence, but there are costs of divergence as well. How big are the costs of divergence likely to be? Well, the government's own economic analysis of Brexit last year put the long-term loss in GDP per person of a close relationship, like Norway's, at some 1.4%. 
against 4.9%. That's a very large difference. And that gap is a really good proxy for the cost of substantial regulatory divergence. Thank you, Tamsin. Thank you. You can read Tamsin's cover story in this week's Economist. Try subscription at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Next, businesses big and small are going to feel the effects of Brexit and have a great deal at stake in those crucial discussions just about to start between Britain and its European neighbours. I'm joined now by Mike Cherry, the chairman of the Federation of Small Businesses. Hello, Mike. Hello. Also with me is the city financier, Dame Helena Morrissey. She recently joined the board of St James Place and is also the founder of the 30% Club, which campaigns to improve the representation of women on the boards of British companies. Hello, Helena. Hello, Patrick. A question for both of you. On Friday, there were people in the streets celebrating what the Prime Minister calls the dawn of a new era. But there were also a lot of people who felt quite the opposite and are quite concerned that we might be doing damage to our trading relationships and to our economy more generally. But how did you both feel at 11 o'clock on Friday? Helena, how did you feel? Well, I felt very relieved, delighted that the democratic vote of 2016 uh, was finally upheld. And as someone who believes that the best decisions are taken close to the people and the businesses that they affect, I must admit that I am, well, I don't know why I'm ashamed to be here. I'm excited about the possibilities. I, I really hope that we do come together as a country. But I am personally very optimistic. Well, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, FSB all the way through has been almost split down the middle. So personally, I was just relieved that we had got over the last three and a half years of uncertainty and political chaos. So if I could stay with you, Mike, now that we have left, what are small businesses looking to government for now? Because as you said, your, your federation was split down the middle. So presumably, different businesses would be looking for different things. Well, it depends, obviously, on whether you are solely uh, engaged with the domestic agenda or whether you are an exporter or an importer. And pleasingly, we have about a third of our membership who are exporters and importers. And clearly, what they need to be seeing is the best opportunities with small businesses right at the heart of these negotiations so that... Um, the government can deliver on behalf of all small businesses. And let's not forget, they are cross-cutting right across the economy. They're in all sectors and they are key parts of most of our supply chain. So very, very important group indeed that have to be at the heart of all of this. Helena, is there any sort of tension between what some bigger firms might want? I mean, some big exporters, some of which have been quite vocally against leaving the EU and some of the issues facing smaller companies? Well, I think sometimes there there inherently will be, but I think it is really important that leaders of big businesses 
uh, do adopt a different mindset at this juncture. And I do see there's a realization that the world has changed now, that the outlook for this country has changed. I was at the Prime Minister's Unleashing Britain's Potential speech at Greenwich, and he was reminding everybody of the potential if we take some leadership in free trade, something that perhaps the world has retrenched from a little bit in recent past. I'm surrounded by people who are involved in big business. You can see the sort of excitement starting to develop. And I do think these are smart people, innovative people, adaptable people. They just need to move, I think, away from the idea that this is a damage limitation exercise and think bigger, think more broadly, think about the bigger opportunities that their businesses have. Okay, well, can we get a bit more specific on the opportunities in that case? Because a lot of Brexiteers have said that it's a great opportunity, but getting specific about those things has not always been the strong point during the campaign. What specifically do you think the opportunities from Brexit are likely to be? So first of all, I'd like to emphasise that I do not have a crystal ball and I'm not going to stand here and say I can see everything that lies ahead. And in fact, I think it's important that we recognise we don't know. I do see opportunities from doing um, in a particular emphasis on trade with the US. One fifth of every product that we, we export goes to the States already, but it's clear there's great alignment between those the two administrations in the US and UK on the big picture, on entrepreneurialism, on the importance of free trade between us. And then again, the Prime Minister emphasised the importance of the Commonwealth countries. I I don't think we should always think in terms of regional, though. Uh, We also need to play our part on the bigger world stage, be a rule maker. And I think there is a need for us to step up here and go beyond our very specific businesses. I think the rest will follow more if we can set the path correctly. And Mike, what do you see that your members might gain from this? From what our surveys are telling us, we have the opportunity now to double the number of exporters. If we can just grasp that one, that would be a a fantastic opportunity to take forward. But also looking at the countries that our members export to primarily, obviously the EU as a bloc is the single most important one at the moment. But it is the US that comes out top in any of the surveys where our members are trading with as the most important country and then followed closely by some of the EU countries, Germany, France, but also looking further afield to Australia, New Zealand, Japan and others and indeed China perhaps in the future. Most studies of international trade will conclude that two countries or two economies trade more with each other, the bigger they are and the closer they are to each other. Now, we're a fairly big economy right next to a very big one, the European Union, to which about 40% of our exports go, at least in, in, in goods. So with the best will in the world, there's going to be a reduction in the closeness of that relationship. And you know, the United States, okay, is our next biggest market. But barriers with the US are already fairly low, at least in terms of tariffs. It's also a long way away. Australia, New Zealand, which people also talk about, they are small economies a long way away. So with the best will in the world, how is it that we can make up the difference from what we may lose in the European Union by trade deals with other economies which are less close? I think that one of the important things to recognise is that obviously a lot of our trade isn't around goods. And frankly, it doesn't really matter where you are in the world if you're trading FX or derivatives and so forth. One of the reasons why the financial services industry, which is obviously a very critical part uh, as things stand in the UK, um, 11% of tax receipts, the EU is a very big trading partner if you take it as a block with us. 
But the reality is that there are always exciting new markets developing. For example, it used to be that you would have, you know, you'd be trading your balance sheet and lending through banking, um, whereas now uh, data transactions that are based much more on volumes and intermediation where you earn a fee. That is much more the sort of driving force of the future for finance. We must be careful not to see this as just an extrapolation of the past, but to recognise that the goods and services that people will be buying are, are changing and changing quite rapidly. Having said that, I do accept that I think, as you said earlier, Patrick, not everyone's going to be a winner here and our economy will change. And, and Mike, what what do you think with your members? I mean, how great are the opportunities in places that uh, are farther away from the European Union? And have you got members who are seriously worried about losing their ability to trade with countries they've been close to for, for all these years? First and foremost, small businesses are incredibly resilient. Yes, there are some dangers ahead. We need to know what the outcome of whatever the trade deals are going to be, whatever these negotiations end up uh, requiring small business to do. And that means that um, any tariffs are going to be damaging to some businesses. There's no doubt about that. Equally, there's other things around rules of origin and customs clearance that we need absolute clarity on. But small businesses are very, very resilient. Tell us what we need to do. We get our heads down. We get on and do it. We're getting into an area here, I think, that I wanted to, to pick up on, which is which is productivity. Well, yeah, we know that in this country we have a productivity problem. If you look at levels, we're well behind our other European partners. If you look at productivity growth for the past few years, it's been, it's been pretty feeble. Well, clearly we do have an issue with productivity. There's no doubt about that. And that is partly because our members in particular aren't able to invest in their businesses. There's been six consecutive quarters with low confidence. We've had all the political shenanigans, as I alluded to earlier. At least we've got stability on the political front. But more importantly, we've got a government now that is certainly looking to the next five, perhaps 10 years and now should be a great opportunity to look at some of the really difficult decisions that should have been made that can now be made around our tax system, making it simpler, making it fairer. Business rates remains a huge problem for many, many businesses. Late payment remains a problem. It's tying up working capital and we need to be making sure that we can tackle that issue as well as some of the others. So even if things aren't directly connected to Brexit, we've ended up at a point where Brexit has caused us to reset the political system, the tax system. We can think afresh with a the, with the clean sheet of paper, even if they're not actually connected to Brexit itself. Helen, where do you think the productivity is coming from? I do concur with Mike that actually now with a longer term horizon, this emphasis that the Prime Minister and the government are putting on levelling up. I mean, obviously, again, we need to see detail, but the sp- of the emphasis on trying to improve growth, prosperity and productivity, because that's all linked together in other parts of the country, is a great opportunity. And in one sense, it isn't anything to do with Brexit, but we are able to get on with our own domestic agenda now. Secondly, it's hard to find anybody in the city who would say that all the EU regulations, the directives that we've sort of done battle with over the last few years have all helped us to thrive as businesses. And I know just a very specific example, you know, when I was running a fund management company in the Capital Requirements Directive, number four, the sort of Rocky Horror shows, isn't it, with all these different numbers after it. But it was aimed initially at banks about replenishing capital, having higher level of capital. Really good initiative, really good idea. But then there was a sprawling, you know, creep of the directive 
with so that it ended up including you know remuneration for fund managers or it ended up including at one stage gender diversity on boards and this creep and the need constantly to sort of push back spend valuable resources on redevising or pushing back on the initial drafts it certainly has, I think, sapped a lot of the energy and productivity in the city. But if we want EU27 customers, you have to play by EU27 rules if you're going to serve those customers, whether you're big or small city or not. Are you saying that basically you've got to be prepared to give that up and look for other business? I don't think it's going to be as black and white as that, although there's obviously going to be a lot of posturing over the next 11 months. We've had Mark Carney come out and say, you know, it would make no sense at all for the City of London to be a rule taker. But I don't think it's a completely black and white situation. The EU companies are very dependent on the city for capital markets financing. There is no single European financial market. We are a dominant player in many of the uh, specific areas of finance that European companies need. I hope that Europe thrives and that we'll reach a sensible point where the economic uh, arguments win over the politics. But obviously, that's what's going to be thrashed out for the next few months. Helena, Mike, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Helena. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for listening. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. However you rate Brexit, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Lane in London. This is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.